0: As you um, continue to practice, then certainly the one uh, can lose a sense of direction. We're starting to, to see so much of our directedness can be, have been motivated through, through fear, anxiety, compulsion of some kind or another. A lot of uh, the drive in us can be a kind of, coming from a restlessness or or an innate need, a feeling we have to make something, become something, prove something, get something. And then when, as this, we begin to see that that drive is not really the the great vehicle that it would seem to be yeah, it can become one can lose heart one gets into the, the onto the plateau the long plateau with mist rolling over it how long why what are we doing this for what's the point it's just another kind of illusion there's nowhere to get to, nobody getting there, why bother, anyway? Reason enough way of thinking about it. That's why you have to take up conventional practices, just doing them for the sake of doing them, as long as you experience any kind of, of dissatisfaction, discontent, doubt, misunderstanding, any kind of delusion, anything that is not complete peace of mind, then you can always just start with a very simple meditation practice as an exercise to to examine this, to look into it, to give yourself some support. And the the balance in Dharma is, is being able to use techniques and use many of them You have your meditation technique you feel good with, or you feel confident with, where faith arises. And then structures in your life where you feel you are applying yourself, and there's a sense of manageability and yet extending. Something is asked from you. This will give you joy, and freedom from regret freedom from these hindrances of doubt and self-criticism and, and regret. And all this is to cultivate the knowing or to fully establish that, the knowing, the awakened. It's, um, they reflecting on the, some of the qualities of the Buddha? The most important or the most elusive one to to uh, to define is is the is the first actually Tathāgata. Tathāgata, which just in English hardly makes any sense at all. It means thus come or thus gone. I suppose once you once it's thus it's you. Coming and going is about the same, really. So, there's, a, there's an immediacy to that, and also a transcendence. It's, could it could be gone beyond, gone beyond duality or beyond selfhood, beyond the restrictions and limitations, gone beyond suffering, and also come, thus come, come into fullness, come into immediacy, come completely into Dhamma, to the way things are. And can yes, just contemplating this as an aspect of this is what the Buddha called himself, referred to himself as not as a person but as this this quality of transcendence though this um, how do we use this symbol in practice because now we're you're beginning to look just at. Not at the, the form of the practice, but at the heart of it. Because the forms will change from time to time, from day to day, and from situation to situation. Where you can't always be in this particular uh, environment. And even within this one you'll find times when there's enthusiasm, and times when there's dullness, and times when there's, it's intense, and times when it's slack. So you have to abide in the knowing rather than in the, in the known, in the experience. And this is... Uh, this uh, transcendent quality. What do? What is it that Tathagata does know? What is their sub- most sublime, supreme, excellent, wonderful quality of a Tathagata? mindfully they know their thoughts when they arise mindfully they know a thought as it endures mindfully they know a thought when it ceases the sublime excellent quality of a transcendent one it's just that much isn't it and yet that's a lot really how many of us actually mindfully know a thought when it arises rather than I'm thinking, and then, oh, excited at this, or depressed about it, and then the struggle, stop thinking, or try to think of something better. And then, when, it's, when it goes, feeling of doubt when that thought passes, and on to the next thought. You think, you know, the words come up in your mind, and you have these, these inner dialogues, or inner monologues going on and this uh, identification with it worry with it confusion about it all, all sorts of unmindful behavior around around the thought because until you actually spent time, cultivating a way that, that just staves off thought temporarily like these practices of effort, effortful concentration when you just determine to, to just go to the breath, go to the body and, or go against the run of thought using determination to just turn away from your most immediate thoughts and impulses. When, you, you've, when you've done that then you're, you, you've got some space, you develop some space, and then you're bringing more investigation into that. You've uh, tamed them, but you're not there to annihilate, you're just to tame. Until one has tamed them, one, one always gets caught up with either annihilating them or, or believing in them. So when we, when we meditate, you, if, you, if you haven't really reflected and understood, meditation is basically annihilating thoughts and then once we get up off the cushion walk out the door, think and believe in them all think more and more and more, what am I going to do next, how's this and how's that, what about this and what about that and and then kind of deep concern, anxiety happiness, sorrow, depression profundity, we just Cause we've swayed, we've swayed from one extreme to, to the other Now yeah. uh, a one who has attained thought knows even the most wonderful high-minded notion is that that's what it is and we can reflect on that and then we to see whether to put that into action or not and then how to go about doing that and how to stay with it rather than just to be continually getting high off of off of great thoughts and ideas but not actually doing anything about it and then sitting and meditating and trying to trying to stop it all so this is what puts you in touch with the intention in your mind rather than just the ideas. Sankappa, the second factor of the Eightfold Path is right intention, right intent. That means if you, if you think of something then you you do that intentionally and then you, you follow it up. And so you consciously intend rather than just think. think. Right, I'm going to get up and I'm going to uh say have a wash, do some exercise, go to the meditation hall, and that's what I'm gonna do. Rather than well, see how I feel. Maybe I could take a walk, maybe I could maybe have a snack and go sit for a while here. Yeah. And then of you know, get halfway down and think, then yeah, maybe maybe what I need to do really is relax a bit. Or maybe I should Work with my attachments. You know, so thinking is always complex, isn't it? You just get so confused with the ideas and the views. And then none of these are wrong. They could all be right. But whatever you, if you want to know whether they're right or, or not, then you consciously intend, pick it up, look at it, see where it's coming from. Whether it's really coming from a place in you that you respect and trust, or whether it's just the uh coming from some kind of uncertain deluded state or, or anxiety or fear or whatever coming from a place that you really trust and feel this is worth putting something into and then you put yourself with it you do it and then you can know and if it was a mistake then you've learnt something about that thought or that intention so when it comes up again you don't you say uh-uh and this is the way that you learn with your, with your mind, learning by dhamma-vijaya, investigation of mind-objects. Now when we're practicing sitting here, meditating, walking up and down, you're looking at, into, into the, even the thoughts in the mind, and learning to navigate in there. And, the, and then listening to the sounds. Which of these can you do you, do you you don't have to annihilate or repress them, but which ones do you want to do you trust or feel good with, you feel peaceful with, you feel certain with? Because you know, some of the sounds, the thoughts in the mind can be very deluding, some of them can be silly and petulant or impatient. But by listening to them you, you know them as they are. Once you know them as they are, you don't have to conquer them because they lose their power to convince you. The worries and the doubts and the I'm this and I should be that. You don't have to suppress that. But the disbelief comes through through wise contemplation knowing it's a thought that arises and passes away. The, this is um, very valuable for us. And when you listen into to thought, you listen, you can hear the thoughts coming and going and the, the more that you, you decide, you determine just to listen to it all but totally listen to it and you set that up as an intention so there's a, there's a complete like you're listening to somebody else or you're listening to a whole group of people chattering away you really listen inwardly and you can hear the thoughts and the sounds and the, but the reactions die down and then you begin to hear the silence. the thoughts arise and pass away into the silence. This is what the target does know, and, you, and this becomes a uh, this becomes a meditation object. Just meditating on silence, sound and silence, form and emptiness, and you you have gladness because you recognise that no sound or form detracts from the silence and the emptiness. They are completely, they cooperate completely. There's an ugly, foolish, disgusting thought arises and passes away in silence. The silence doesn't mind. Then the most profound, wonderful insight arises and passes away in the silence. The silence is not impressed. Then just the the important things I've got to do when I get back, silence listens to that. knows it passes away. The, all of this, the silence is not at all disturbed by sound. Only the hankering after silence, the hankering after sound, the fear or regret of silence, the fear and regret of sound. Now this is always just this simple purification, isn't it, to, to use these noble truths right down into the level of, of refined contemplation of the mind. Where is there wanting more than we've got, not wanting what we, there is now? And what is it required to bring our attention to that point where we can stay on that edge? So it does require energy. But this energy is no longer the drive to succeed, but the drive to, or the aspiration to be on that edge, to live in a state of total insecurity, to be on that edge. And not ask for it to be anything other than it is. Because we know that edge keeps us alert, awake, and that's our path of freedom. The eightfold path. Those requires energy, mindfulness, investigation of dumbness. These these some of the enlightenment factors. And a joy and rapture is means in, you know, like an enthusiasm sense of, of willingness that comes up in us to, yes, this is possible. Even this, you know, when there's a test or a struggle with dullness or impatience or sorrow in the mind, okay, this is a, this is a test, isn't it? This is something we'd be willing to, to work towards. We don't particularly like it, but we, we say, right, we'll, we'll come to that. Get on to that. There's a there's a point of liberation here. There's something I need to know. Something I need to learn from. Something it can teach me about holding on and letting go. It's called grabbing the ball by the horns. It's a very ancient ancient custom. Grabbing the ball by the horns. It was in. Uh, In ancient Crete, they used to have this kind of sport or a ritual whereby they have these enormous bulls charging, and people would be trained to, to grab the bull by the horns and somersault over its back, land on its back, and dance off of the back of the bull. There's a kind of religious mystery. Because mo- most of us would, would either just sc- scoot pretty quick, <laughs> or get a gun or something to, to shoot the thing. And that is, that's what we do in our meditation, isn't it? It's something A ball comes charging in, let's get out of here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like this, I don't, can't handle this. Or, Or quick, give me something I can beat it with, uh, some some kind of repressive energy, or and the clubs you can use, uh, you can use kindness as a as a a way of bashing things. Be kind to it in order to get rid of it. It's like trying to drug the bull, isn't it? You bully, have some. Of plead with it, or but to actually grab the ball by the horns and leap over it is a kind of is energy, very, and uh, there's a delight in that leap, the leap of faith, the leap into the unknown is, is delightful. That kind of sense of of being completely just there with that moment. So we get a kind of, there's a kind of immediacy about that and a, an a, and a uplift in our hearts. To deal with the impossible, the unsurmountable, is standard practice. Because once we deal with that, we, re- we recognize that we only think it's impossible, unbearable, unmanageable, can't do that and the great joy is to is to let the leap over you find the bull is just made out of thought emotion, perception, memory when you leap over it there wasn't anything there really so there's a also calm being able to be calm with things Now. Calm comes with with patience. It's not just the, the calm of tranqui- tranquillity, but the calm of, of patience of not being having to jump up to react, but to be able to to be calm with with the, the restlessness or the agitation or the needs to become something. It's not even getting rid of them. It's being calm with them, rather like we are soothing something to calm down and concentrating this unification of ourselves upon the way things are and equanimity uh, to be equanimous this is uh, this only gets a good mention in in Buddhists terminology really, equanimity. Most people don't really have much of a feeling for that. Perhaps it's, it's rather a dull indifference where, if it, people are equanimous or, or not interested, bored, I don't care indifferent feeling. But equanimity as an enlightenment factor is, is not that. Equanimity is one of the, one of the highest of the, the ten paramitas, the perfections and one of the insight knowledges, one of the divine abidings. So it gets a lot of good, good reviews by Buddhist critics. (laughs) Upekar. It's not, it's this level which comes from, which comes with wisdom and understanding that things arise and pass away, things change. Now, on a retreat situation, you 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 find this, this equanimity is the. So you, you can become dull if you don't recognize this. The leveling out is not an it doesn't is not indifference. The leveling out because sometimes we don't feel so emotionally geared up one way or another. As long as we are looking for that. Then we can start to identify or fall into a feeling of dullness about the calm and the, and the leveling. Well, equanimity is to be consi- to be looked into in this, this retreat situation. So uh, you consider the feelings of what, we, what do we get out of it? Or, this is, say, the penultimate day, yeah. only one one more day to get something out of it. Then it all, you oh, know, what's going to happen then? i would probably hold it together till Sunday evening, yeah. Monday to... Yeah. Then the, the concentration or the understanding, Will pass away or the concentration concentrated feelings may may disperse the situations may change and, and so forth and or in I've seen myself in in meditation practice How at times when one begins a retreat we think well oh, this is a chance I could really you know i could really I know you're not supposed to get anything out of this, but (laughs) I, when I've read, uh, you know that's what they say. But uh, this—he's certainly got something out of it. (laughs) I look at the teacher and think the teacher looks really happy. He's obviously got something out of this. You don't tell me you don't get anything out of it. He's looking good, and I feel I feel miserable. And then when he sits, he doesn't fall over after half an hour, and he doesn't nod, fall asleep. He's got something together, and then I'm sure his mind isn't nattering away, constantly like mine is. Must have got a lot of space and silence and strength. And, yeah. Now I don't know how you do that, oh, no, I'd like to get some of that. So uh, that, that feeling or jhana is the is the great um, fruit for us, isn't it? You look in these meditation books and the teachings of the suttas and go through all this stuff about hindrances and being good and all that, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you kind of wade through the things you don't really like to hear about, like not uh, following sensual desire. Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> giving things up, or then, get, then he gets the 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 candy. Is the then he enters the first John and the second John, of, uh, and then this rounds really nice. You know, boundless space, infinite consciousness. Yeah. <laughs> And it sounds like it sounds legitimate thing to get, but it's these but these these arise naturally from cultivating um, what we've been doing really, because the practice is one of always l- letting go. The practice is one of the four noble truths of contemplating where there's desire, suffering. Uh, you what know, suffering is coming from wanting something, putting your mind onto that and letting go. But that implies also it's not a collapse, is it? Because you have to keep putting your mind onto it, putting your attention into it and investigating and being mindful with energy and, and enthusiasm. And then letting, letting go is, is, is equanimity factor. And then when there's, when there's equanimity, then the, the mind levels out and we enter the path of silence. When there's nothing, we're not saying things about ourselves anymore. There's not, a, there's not a, an inner monologue or a dialogue, or a trialogue, or how many of you got in there. <laughs> the whole committee meeting, thrashing out the issues of who and what and why, the equanimity, path of silence, it's like this, and it's from that that these, these jhanas arise. In, our, in, in monastic life we find that there are, are many occasions where you have to be with things that are very difficult, things that you don't find any real solution to, like we sit all night, And this means that for most people you may think well this is a chance to sharpen and get into jhan and attain bliss and whatever. But actually all you do is you find your mind gets dull and then you get, it hurts and your body aches, feels stiff and dull. And then you start to think I'm going to feel a wreck tomorrow and I've got to do this and that and what's the point of this anyway? Just it'd be better to go and have a rest than get up when I feel bright and alert and really practice, not just sit here, dopey and dull. But we do it to practice, to cultivate patience, equanimity and surrender and these qualities. Resolution, which all contribute to enlightenment factors. There has to be a constant willingness that You can't be kind of frog-marched into it, get on your cushion, chain you down has to be a willingness to do that because otherwise there can't be any any of this uh, enthusiasm or, uh, or proper approach to it. It's just an endurance test, just a punishment. They so have to be one who is willing to to test themselves, to put themselves into w- with situations that they don't feel uh, completely certain about or they can handle. And then we look at the the self-image that comes up when we don't get it right, when we fail, and then you get it right for a bit, and you think, "Oh, I'm getting good at it," and then you fail, and, oh no, getting it wrong, and all this until eventually, just, just leave it alone, will you? Because <laughs> these kinds of things, people think you're making yourself very tough. You know, your monks must be really tough. Really unyielding, just kind of being able to suppress desires, craving. You know, you must. I mean, I couldn't do that. No, no food in the evenings. No sex. No, no dancing. No fun. No going where you want to go. You I mean, must be really tough, tough guys to push all that down, or, or incredibly noble. By sort of some. Uh, superman or a a saint. But you're a meditator actually, which is neither and somehow both. Uh, Because you know that the desires in your mind come and go and the impatience in your mind comes and goes. And you no longer expect your mind to be some idyllic perfect place where nothing ever happens to disturb you. You're quite used to seeing it as a garbage heap And you, you've cultivated equanimity, because it's not self, not what you are, you've given up the, the mind as... as or the, the sensory mind, the conditioned mind, the mind of objects, mind objects as personal possession, it's this way. When there's, when there's something ugly in the mind, we, we are patient with it, and we look after it, and we try to, to put aside the aversion or the despair with that. Now it's not becoming tough, but becoming very loving. So that you find that with this, a natural quality of of metta, of loving kindness and compassion starts <coughs> to to radiate through your life without you trying to do it. It's just because that finally is the, about is a becomes the, the means that arises from equanimity, It's the, the benevolence. Because what to do with with the, the ha- habits that we know we shouldn't have, and the impatience and the restlessness of our life and being peaceful, benevolent, and kind with that. Then the silence, equanimity, and the, and the higher absorptions. Not through self-will, but through a renunciation of, of self-will. The, in the Buddhist teachings there are many fables and parables of the Buddha developing these qualities in previous lives and one of the, one of the finest ones is the, the Buddha developing equanimity. Okay, when the Buddha was a, an ascetic in a previous life he, it was a life to determine and, and to develop equanimity. so he decided he'd sleep out. Rough. He'd sleep out in the cold. And he'd sleep on, he'd live in, uh, he'd sleep out on brambles and thorns. And in the daytime, he'd go out and bake in the sun till he was cooked. And he'd live on just leaves and water, drink out of puddles. And as well, he's got very rough uh, bark garments. And so people ran away from him because he looked so totally ghoulish after a while. He got so so many austerities he took up to become, to be develop equanimity and get beyond it all. But, and then when he was on his, he spent his whole life doing this in order to, because when you develop these, this equanimity, these refined calmness and stillness of the mind is called the Brahma Loka or the Divine Abidings, the the Brahma Spheres. So that in this cosmology that when you die you go into the Brahma worlds, the boundless space, the infinite consciousness, the uh, infinite dimensions. So he spent his whole life putting aside every kind of desire and comfort in order to, when he died, to get into the Brahma Loka. When he died, he started. He, he his, his consciousness moved, but it went straight to, to hell. Because <laughs> this is the result of any kind of hard, willful, brutal actions towards yourself. Is that you look into your mind, whether it's really violent or push pushing down or brutal. There, you forceful with yourself, and this is what this is <laughs> the cruelty and the malevolence that, that is what hell is about. You can see heaven and hell right in your own mind. Just as he got to the gates of hell, he thought, this whole lifetime has been a complete and utter waste of time, hasn't it? (laughs) Oh well, never mind. And at that moment, he perfected the quality of equanimity (laughs) and went straight up into the the heaven (laughs) ones. Just a moment, isn't it? I mean, you can. That's why this practice is just a moment. You can. It doesn't matter if you spent. You know, you think, oh, I'm you've really got these deep habits, and you know, I'm really, really hard on myself, and brutal, or I'm greedy, or selfish. Just the moment is all you need to to leap over the bull. To to hell disappears in a moment. And the vastness of our problems disappears in a moment. There's equanimity, this refined, sublime surrendering and uh, with with willingness and attention. that we've abandoned every remnant of the if only and what if and how can I feelings. So when you contemplate into your mind, looking in there, is the, the silence or the the emptying, if your mind is becoming more more silent, you begin to perceive silence and look and feel out where are the the are still the movements in there? Say the the certain anxieties or the over intensity of is this it? Have I got something? Am I doing the right thing? The doubt, right? the wanting it to be more the wanting to figure it out and you keep your mind on that edge where conditions are rising and cultivate attention mindfulness willingness collectedness calm equanimity and it's it's from this that you're find a, a constant point of practice when your mind maybe becomes you don't quite know what to do anymore or it's just getting rather dull with, with, with tranquility then you look into into what you're wanting or what you're <sighs> avoiding, like if you're using tranquility to just suppress thought then bring bring some thoughts in, look into the kind of thoughts that obsess you when you you've stopped practising. Bring them up into your practice while you're practising. While you and the best possible opportunity to to look at those and understand them. Kind of ordinary things, the people and daily concerns that bother you when you're when you're away from this retreat or even while you're on this retreat. You consciously look at them and work with them until there's a, a freedom that enables you to to be relieved from the suffering and the stress and the anxiety of them, and then to respond and act in a suitable way when the time comes, and then intend to do that, then well, that's what I'm going to do, make a determination and then just do it, and don't think about it. Don't look back, don't give it a second thought, just do it and learn. And that that will be always unique for all of us and yet somehow helpful for all of us, to be realized human beings and to live our lives clearly, responsibly, without doubt, worry and regret and delusion. Now the, the situation is this, today we have this opportunity to practice together, to try to support each other by by practicing together, by reflecting on whether our attitudes towards ourselves and the other retreatants and the staff and me and this situation we're in is really helpful and supportive, sensitive, kind, or whether we just kind of bundling around saying I'm going to get my stuff together and that's what's really important, or whether we can really act as as, as enlightened ones with a, a cheerfulness, a willingness and a cooperation. And the find today as we practice together, bring attention into this, like when you're helping with a meal or Washing up or whatever, joyfully, willingly, There's an opportunity to to bring some benefit into a living situation. Just this simple one here, and you begin to see the the boundlessness of good practice. Um, today, I I'll, I'll see. I'd like to see group E at. Um, 9.45 and then group F at 10.45. Now, this, this afternoon I thought it would be a suitable occasion where we could um, open the Pandora's box at, at 4.30 Pandora's box will be opened. This means <laughs> <laughs> That uh, you have a chance to um, talk with each other, get to know each other, cultivate right speech. (laughs) Let your minds move around in that way. To see who these uh, people are around you that you've been thinking about comparing, <laughs> and uh, kind of gazing at over <laughs> the breakfast table, because uh, the, the, community consciousness is a very helpful thing in in Dharma practice. See so, um, uh, 4:30, then and we can meet at 7:30. So, your chance to. Uh, Let things move. Of course if you don't really don't want to then you better head for the woods.